You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Thanks be to God for the reading and hearing of his word. Thank you, Rich. Family, good morning. It is great to uh, be here with you all this morning. Again, if you're a guest, I want to give you a special welcome. And uh, again, a general invite to all of you. Come tomorrow to the cookout. It's going to be great. If you're new, especially come. We would love to see you there. It's a great way to kind of casually meet some people in the church. And uh, hopefully, I don't know, I think the food will be good. We'll see. You guys can give your assessment afterwards. Uh, A couple quick announcements before we jump in. So number one, I just want to give you a bit of a sermon forecast where we're going to be headed in the uh, months and weeks to come. So if you remember back in the early March timeframe, we were looking at this passage where Jesus invites us on the Sermon on the Mount to ask and to seek and to knock, that we can boldly go before God and ask for things, confident that he'll answer. And some of the requests that we laid before him corporately as a church is number one, passion and more, bring us out of sort of this kind of COVID season that we've been in with more passion and more desire to be engaged in his mission than we ever had before. And then another request that we laid out was that God would give us clarity as to what it looks like for us to carry out that mission together as a church. And so we've been praying for those things and we wanted to spend a few weeks focusing in on that topic. God, what have you called us to as a church? Certainly you've called us to do more than just exist and kind of gather here on Sundays. You've got a mission that you've entrusted with us. And so I wanna spend a few weeks looking at our mission together And then after that, we're going to go to the Old Testament book that involves the rebuilding of God's people. And so we're going to be looking at that uh, through the remainder of the summer. So that's just a forecast of where we are headed. And I also want to give just a quick kind of formal update on some of our kind of safety realities here. And so I wrote it down just so... I don't want to mess this up, okay? So here's, here's, uh, here's just some updates for where we're going. So now with the widespread availability of vaccines and the low uh, case numbers of COVID, uh, as well as the updated guidelines on masking and distancing for most of society, uh, we went ahead and approached Baldwin's leadership uh, to kind of get some guidance on that. And they basically left it to our discretion to be able to uh, sort of come up with our own policies. And so we've decided going forward uh, that we will make masks optional for our worship services. 
Uh, we'll be looking at some new seating options for kind of how we want to put the seats together. We're not quite sure exactly how we will do that. Um, as always, we invite our members and people gathering to turn to the CDC for the latest approach on COVID protocols and the best way to handle that. Um, more personally, just, just speaking honestly, uh, COVID rules and protocols have indeed been a divisive issue in our church uh, over the past year. And I really wanna say this clearly, it doesn't need to be an issue that's divisive in our church at all. Uh, not at all. Uh, different people will respond to kind of the latest rules in different ways. Uh, we recognize some of you may choose to wear a mask, others may choose not to. That is your call, uh, your discretion. Uh, regardless of that, I want us to just briefly hear Paul's words that were written to the church in Rome in the midst of some controversial, divisive issues where people had different approaches, different opinions about this is what he said. Therefore, let, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. And then later in the chapter, he says that you may together with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are focused on one's masking or opinion about COVID, we will miss out on the much greater priority that God has laid on us as a church to glorify him with one unified voice. That's what we've come to do. We're at the point now where we'll let people make their own decisions about masking without any together. So... Uh, amen. That, that's, the, that's the latest update on that. Um, you know, as always, we're happy to have discussions. If you have questions about any of this with us, uh, any of the uh, pastors would be happy to make ourselves available to uh, discuss those things going forward. Uh, with that, I appreciate y'all's energy on uh, COVID stuff. Now let's apply that same energy to God's word as we consider Matthew chapter 16 together. Let's pray and invite God to speak to us. God, that's my ask of you right now. In the name of Jesus, I ask that you would indeed speak to your church. Lord, I was just so moved by our liturgy this morning and how you seek us out, how you save us and you redeem us. I remember, man, the person who led me to you saying shortly afterwards that um, saved people become sent people. God, how many of us in this room have tasted the salvation that's offered to us through your sacrifice, would you now make us people who are sent declaring the wonders of that sacrifice and how significant it is and what it can mean when people embrace it for themselves? So Lord, I really pray that uh, as we've over these next few weeks focus on our mission together, that you would restore our church with a impassioned focus on the work that you've called us to. And I just pray that you would use these words um, to bring that about in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Leave your Bibles open right there very specifically on verse 18. I was with our staff earlier this week and we were just doing a little bit of a trip down memory lane for the history of our church. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time reflecting on what our church was like sort of during the first year or two 
that, uh, that we launched it. And so about five years ago, during the summer of 2016, we were kind of getting the word out that we think, think, thought the Lord was gonna plant a new church in Old Town. And then in September, we held a vision meeting where we used to meet up the road uh, at the church building on Main Street. And to our shock, the sort of week after our vision meeting, a bunch of people showed up in a living room and they said, yeah, let's plant this church. Let's make this thing happen. And I was just trying to, to recall our minds to what sort of the culture or the energy of our church was during that moment. And so the people who were there remembered saying things like, man, that, that was a time of incredible unity. In our church, that was a time of incredible zeal. I mean, people were so excited to show up at kind of whatever was happening and, and be a part of it. Um, that, that was a time of incredible sacrifice. People were serving left and right. I was shocked as, as we were putting this thing together and had a lot of financial needs to see some of the incredible financial contributions that people were giving to make this new church a reality. And I can remember thinking to myself, uh, that this was for me personally, like the most exciting group of people that I had ever been a part of. And because of the church planting group that I was a part of, I was actually in Israel shortly after the church started. But my mind during the majority of that incredible trip was, I cannot wait, wait to get back uh, to be with these people because the amount of energy and and I think what was particularly exciting about that time is that these kind of descriptions that I'm giving to you are not for many of us at different times, church is just sort of an event we attend, uh, wouldn't be described as the most exciting thing happening in our lives at that moment. And yet uh, that was the experience we were having together. And so we discussed this as a staff, what, what was it that caused sort of that zeal and that energy and that excitement in those early days? And, you know, we reflected that certainly there was something to the fact that it was new, Okay, anytime something's new and shiny, just as humans, that kind of draws us in and we kind of have extra excitement about it. But I think actually something much deeper that created that culture at New City in the early days was this. There was so much zeal, so much excitement, so much energy because we were together wholeheartedly committed to a mission. Together, we had bought into this really a simple goal. We we're we're going to start a church, and we're going to have worship services and kids ministry and community group. And just the fact that there was a goal in front of us that we were chasing together uh, created this kind of energy and excitement that I'm describing to you. Which which brings me just to this main idea that I want to get across to us as a church this morning. The main idea is sim simply this: moving towards a mission is absolutely essential to the health and vitality of a church. Moving towards a mission, uh, moving towards a mission is absolutely essential to the health and vitality of a church, so much so that I would go so far as to even say that without a mission, Without a goal that we are pursuing together, we will begin to dwindle and completely fall apart. Having a clear mission is not only an option, but essential to our survival as a church. Ceases to exist. 
We are called to so much more than to simply gather, go through the motions, manage the current reality that we have. We are called to pursue a mission together. And something incredible happens with human beings uh, all come together united around a single goal. How much truer of that is it for human beings redeemed in the image of God uh, together in the church? We are either moving towards God's mission for us or we are decaying and falling apart. Uh, the illustration that I have in my mind uh, that, that I think articulates this is uh, two bodies of water, okay? So, so let me describe the first one to you. Have any of you ever been out to Shenandoah and been to White Oak Canyon before? Have, have any of you ever taken that hike? It is a beautiful experience, okay? Basically what it is is the location where like, you know, the different mountains there where all the water kind of collects and comes down the mountain is right there. And so, you know, it's about a, a four or 5,000 feet up and, and you, know, you walk a little bit and what you start stumbling across are these beautiful streams and then these big waterfalls uh, all the way up this hike. It is beautiful. When the sun hits that water, it glistens and shines. Uh, it has this effect of almost drawing you to it. You, you, when you see the, the beauty of this water, you're compelled towards it until you feel how cold it is. Then you want no part of it. Uh, but but it, it's this, this flowing, moving water down the mountain that is so inviting, so beautiful, so compelling, you, you maybe even would be tempted to drink out of it, okay? Um, don't, but you may be tempted to. Um, and uh, in that woods was this like stagnant pond, like smaller than the size of this room. And it was still, it was brown, it had things growing in it. It was disgusting. There was one winter where I was walking on the ice and I fell through and you may have been thinking like, oh, were you concerned about hypothetical? I have some theories about the origins of COVID and this pond. I don't know if they're related, but maybe, you know, someone in the CDC could, could check that out. Uh, but but this, this still water is is the opposite of White Oak Canyon, whereas White Oak Canyon draws you in. This still water is repulsive. It, it causes you to want to stay away from it. I think the same thing is actually true in the church. When the church is moving on mission, it is attractive, it is beautiful, it is something you wanna be a part of. When the church is stagnant and still, it's, it repels people. It, some weird things start to grow in it. Uh, there starts to be arguments and judgmentalism and, and arguments about preferences and, and silly things like that because we were never called to be a stagnant group of people. We were called to be a people moving on mission. And so this passage this morning is, I think, one of the most important passages as it pertains to the, the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. What we're gonna see him uh, do in this passage is, is one, reveal something to us about his identity, who he is as the Messiah. But immediately as he talks about who he is, he describes what he came to do. And so I think as we consider what Jesus came to do, that's gonna help us consider what we are called to together as a church. And so just some stops along the way. First, we're gonna look at kind of the location that Jesus is at because that's very important. Secondly, we're gonna look at this confession about Jesus's identity, okay, that, that Peter makes in this passage. And then lastly, we're gonna really focus in on verse 18 that describes the mission that Jesus came to accomplish and then close with 13 couple, I think, quick applications, okay? So let's get ready to jump in uh, back in verse 13. Let's read that one more time. It says... Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, let's just stop right there. 
A lot of times, maybe when you're reading the Bible, you hear about a city or a place and you just move right on past it and, and that's okay. With Caesarea Philippi, we need to camp out on this a little bit because this is a very important place. Caesarea Philippi was about 20 miles north of where Peter was from in Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, but Peter and the other disciples, even though they were only 20 miles away, they probably never would have gone to this place. Caesarea Philippi, under Alexander the Great, uh, was establishing different regions. Uh, this city was established. And at Caesarea Philippi, there is this massive rock, almost this cliff face. And so Jesus' discussions about a rock later on are going to be relevant. And at the bottom of it was this stream of water that flowed out of it. Uh, and uh, what was built over it was a, uh, a, a temple to a Greek god called Pan. Pan was a Greek god that was half goat, half human. Uh, it's from the, where we get the English word pandemonium, which denotes like chaos, destruction, hell, th those kinds of things. So that, that gives you a little bit of the vibe of what was going on there. If you were to have shown up at this temple at Caesarea Philippi, what you would have observed were the most depraved, twisted, dark expressions of idolatry that you could have ever seen. There was temple prostitution. There were uh, sacrifices that were being offered. Uh, this was a place any of us, let alone a, a you know, upstanding Jewish person in those days, uh, this is a place none of them would want anything to do with. And so it's interesting though, as we begin talking about Jesus's mission, what he came to do, he doesn't choose to begin talking about it in Jerusalem or in a church or in a synagogue. He brings his disciples to one of the darkest places on planet earth to describe his mission. That just simply begins to communicate to us that the mission that Jesus has is not for moral upstanding citizens. Our Messiah is about to do some things among some of the most dark and depraved human beings on the face of the earth. That's the location. And then at this location of Caesarea Philippi, we have a discussion about Jesus's identity. Let's read verse 14. When they, or sorry, still verse, verse 13. They came to the district of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples a, a general discussion about Jesus's identity. He goes to his disciples and says, hey, kind of what's the word on the street about me? What are the popular bloggers? What are the you know, discussion groups saying about my identity? What, what's kind of the word on the street? What are the varying opinions out there, right? Like even today, you know, on controversial subjects, there's all kinds of opinion groups and people that love to discuss it. Uh, on Jesus, he was a controversial figure. Who do people say that I am? And they begin listing figures. Well, uh, you know, he goes on to say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, uh, or one of the prophets. So essentially the word on the street is that, that you're really somebody significant. Like you are uh, in, in the line of these very important religious leaders. You know, you are uh, uh, someone who is of, of great significance. You are a person of great influence and importance. So that's the word on the street about him. And then he turns to his disciples and he asks the single most important question any of his disciples or anyone in this room can ever be confronted with. He turns to them, he turns to us, and he asks the following. I've heard what people out there are saying. Who do you say that I am? 
Who do you say that I am? Do you know your entire eternity rests upon how you answer that question? He asks his disciples, he asks us, who do you say that I am? Not what's the popular opinion about there? What do theologians say about me? What does the Discovery Channel say about me? Um, Not are you religious? Not were you raised in in a Christian home? None of that. Who do you say that I am? Jesus confronts us with the very same question. Is he, like we just discussed, somebody really important? I mean, one of these big time religious world-changing leaders. Is he somebody really important? Is he unique from every other human that's ever set foot on this earth? Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. And Peter gives the answer that can only come supernaturally. This is Peter's response Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. What does that mean? First of all, the Old Testament has been waiting for thousand years for this appointed leader that God would send to set everything right for his people. So Peter says, you're much more than a prophet. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. We've been waiting for you, but not only are you a human Messiah, you are the son of the living God. You're not just an important Messiah. You're not just an important leader. You are something else entirely. You're divine. You are uh, God himself packaged up in human form. You are God incarnate walking among us. That is who you are. And Peter commends him because that's the right answer. That's the true nature of who he is. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. The only way we can come to a right understanding of who Jesus actually is, is a miraculous work that God does in our life. Man, I'm praying this morning that God might even do that for some of you in this room where you couldn't be more far from God than anybody else on the face of this earth right now. And yet you come to realize for yourself, he's not just a teacher. He's not just somebody important. He's the son of the living God. He is the king of the universe. He's the Christ. So that's the discussion there about Jesus's identity. But it quickly moves from who Jesus is, his identity, to a discussion about what Jesus as the Messiah came to do. Because remember, Jesus is not just a Messiah who came to kind of maintain the status quo. He's not a uh, Messiah that came to uh, sit passively. He is a Messiah on the move. He's not stagnant, he's not still, he's, came, he's come to accomplish something. So let's read. Immediately after his identity is revealed to his disciples, we see what he came to do in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, against it. Just quick side note, there's a lot of debate about what exactly Jesus means by Peter and on this rock I'll build my church. I don't have time to get into that this morning. I wanna focus on two things that pertain to Jesus the Messiah's mission. First of all, I wanna focus on this word, build. So uh, write confession of his identity and then he says, uh, I I tell you on this rock, I will build my church. For any of us to hear that Jesus has come to build the church, that's like pretty obvious, pretty straightforward, but you have to understand how significant this is. For Jewish people who are hearing these words, very well versed in their background, that word build, particularly coming out of the mouth of Jesus the Messiah, is gonna be very important. Why? 
Because about a thousand years before that was King David. And we saw last week, David was a worshiper. Among all the things that King David did, he loved to worship. And so what did David want to do? He wanted to build a temple. But God says to David, nope, you're not going to build a temple. One of, one of your sons, one of your offspring is going to build a temple for me. And so we see right after David, Solomon steps on the scene and Solomon builds what was then, and I'm sure if we saw it today, a absolute marvel of the world. He built perhaps the most immaculate temple that has ever been constructed. Uh, God promised that a offspring of David would build a temple. And here we see Solomon building a temple. Well, unfortunately, the people of God continue throughout their history, turning towards idols so, so that not one brick remains on top of the other. But in the Old Testament, this hope is set up that still there's going to be this offspring of David that will come and build the temple once again. In, uh, there, a second temple is built under the uh, leadership of Ezra that we'll focus on for uh, about 300 years and different times it was invaded and knocked down and rebuilt again. But <clears throat> here we have Jesus, who at the very beginning of his life in Matthew's gospel is told to be uh, the great, 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 great grandson of David. And just as an interesting tidbit, what does David's adoptive father do? He's a carpenter. He's a builder. So here we have the, the offspring of David grew up in a house where building happened, saying that he's going to build something. And what is the one thing that Jesus said that he was going to build? He said that he was going to build, not a temple, but the church. What is the church? The church are those who have been called out from this world to now uh, be God's people. Uh, they are his assembly. As we gather in this room, we are the church. We are assembled before and in the midst of the presence of God. And how ironic here Jesus is standing in front of this temple to false worship where he says, I'm going to build my church. So Jesus steps on the scene as the fulfillment of the Old Testament anticipation. A great, 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 great grandson of David is going to rebuild what was lost when the temple was destroyed. But this time it's not gonna be a temple made of brick and stone. This time God is building a temple made out of flesh and blood. And when you make the same confession that Peter made, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, guess what you join? You become a part of the temple of the living God. You become a part of the meeting place between God and man, which is why Paul will say to the Corinthians later on, do you not know you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You are God's very dwelling place. Jesus came to build a people for God that will now uh, take the place of the temple as the meeting place between God and man. Now, once again, remember the location where Jesus is at. This temple where people are worshiping these, these false gods, giving their lives over to the worship of these false gods. And here he's saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build a, a temple for God. I'm gonna build a church. Those gods that can't satisfy them, can't fill them, I'm gonna make them a part of my church. You know, one of the clearest places where the church is described as the temple is in the book of Ephesus. And in the city of Ephesians, when Paul visits that place, something interesting happens. A riot breaks out when Paul goes to the city of Ephesus because 
in that city, uh, the temple uh, or the uh, idol salesmen uh, were making a good bit of money off of the trade in that land. It was so popular, so big that a lot of money was being made as little idols were sold or sacrifices to the temple. And so a riot breaks out. Why? Because these, these, uh, these idol salesmen are basically saying, hey, this message about Jesus is causing us to go bankrupt. People are abandoning idols and joining the church of the living God. So much so that it's affecting the economics of our city. Church, what do we long to see? What is our mission? We long to see people in our day and age abandoning the false gods that offer much but never come through and find themselves worshiping the true and living God. We exist as a church to join the Messiah in seeing people turn from false gods to worshiping the true and living God. We long to see people abandon the gods of wealth, the gods of personal fitness, uh, the gods of new possessions, the gods of popularity, the gods of sex, uh, the gods of fill in the blank, to wholesale abandon them and join to the temple of the living God where they can worship the one they were made to worship in the first place. That's what we exist to do. And that's what I long to see. People turning their back on the empty promises that this world offers, giving themselves wholesale and worship to the Lord Jesus. That's the first ask God. Let's look at another aspect of this mission that he's gonna carry out. The first pertains to building. The second pertains to rescuing. So he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So first he describes the building and then he goes into this conversation about these these gates. Now, if you've been in church for a while, maybe you've heard this language, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And uh, how that's often understood, I think for, for a lot of Christians, maybe we read that, and sort of this sigh of relief. Whew. Jesus is building his church. And man, I've, I've been out in the world out there. It can be a cold place. It can be a rough place, but I'm in the church. So I'm safe and I'm secure because the, the gates of the church are not gonna be able to be broken. There, there's no one who can come in and snatch me out of, of God's hand. I'm, I'm safe and secure. And so what's uh, understood about what Jesus is maybe saying here is that this pertains to like our, our safety or um, uh, kind of being on the defensive. Now it's true that we're safe in God's hand, but that's not actually the reference of what's going on here. He does not talk about the gates of the church that aren't gonna uh, prevail or, or, or be broken into. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? Last August, there was an incredible story out of Georgia. It should have gotten a lot more attention Unfortunately, the news media only makes money off of bad news, I think, and so uh, stories like these don't get a lot of attention. We've been uh, offering a, a class on human trafficking, and uh, to, to perhaps many of our shock, the, the problem of people being trafficked uh, turned into some sort of, some form of slavery still exists today. Uh, to, to just our utter amazement, this exists among young people, among kids. And so there was a major issue in the trafficking. And for a two-week period, the story was the U.S. Marshals in that area uh, rescued some 39 kids, brought them out of the situation that they were in and brought them to safety. Incredible story. Now, let's just imagine you're there. Maybe you're like, you know, recording it or something. You're there with these uh, U.S. Marshals and they found the location with some kids that are in there. 
And they realize there's this um, gate, there's this door that's keeping us from them. In that moment, they're not saying to themselves, oh man, thank God, that door can't break in against us. We're safe over here. We don't have to worry about it. When they see that door, when they see that gate, perhaps what they think to themselves is, there is no door on this planet that will keep us from breaking through and rescuing the beloved children that are on the other side of it. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, that is not a defensive description. That is a offensive description. That's a picture of a church on the move saying there are no children held captive under the tyranny of Satan, under the tyranny of sin. Uh, There is no door strong enough that will be able to break my church from going through and seeing those people rescued. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Not defensive, not on guard, on mission. Seeing people transferred out of the tyranny of hell, whether it be hell on this earth of addiction, depression, the misery that comes from following the false gods of this world, or it be an eternity of hell and tormented, separated from God. Jesus is saying there is no gate strong enough to stop the mission that my people are engaged in. That is what, my friends, we have been called to. First of all, we are joining in Jesus in this temple building project, this church building project where we see people uh, removing their love from the false gods of this world and placing them on Jesus. And there's also an aspect of this mission that we've been entrusted with that involves rescue, salvation, redemption, people who are ruined in sin, held captive under uh, the, the, the prince of this world are set free to not live the lives they were always created to live. That's the mission that. So let me just boil it down here and and simplify it. I realize I've got a lot going on here. I'm talking about these old temples and ancient Greece, and I'm talking about the Old Testament and Jesus fulfilling that and building the church and Jesus rescuing. What what does all of this boil down to at the end of the day? What is is the clear-cut mission that God has called us to? Let me just put it to you very simply. Here's what we're called to, church. We are called to make more disciples. That's it. I say more because I don't want to confuse it with just, hey, we're called to make disciples like just personally grow ourselves. No, we want to personally grow and become more like Jesus, but we want to see more and more people added to that process. What is a disciple? A disciple is somebody who's been rescued out from behind the gates of hell have been added to the temple, the church of the living God, and are now spending time getting that hell off of them as so many of us are learning and doing. As we follow Jesus, we learn what it is to to live as true human beings, redeemed in the image of our creator. That is what we are after. We wanna see more disciples of Jesus made. That's why we exist as a church. And we cannot allow ourselves uh, any longer, I know many are engaged in that mission, but especially coming out of COVID, we cannot allow ourselves to say, okay, well, let's maintain, let's manage, let's stay steady. Of course, we wanna do those things, we wanna be faithful. But what I long to see are more lives transformed, more people added to the temple of the living God, a subtraction from those who are worshiping at all the false temples in our area uh, uh, added to the people of God. That is what we long to see. Maybe hit us personally, okay? By considering with you just maybe three areas where this can maybe hit us personally, okay? Uh, Here's the first way, maybe the first area of application I wanna discuss with you. I, I just wanna ask you this question. Could you just take a moment, maybe this morning before communion, maybe later today, um, maybe before you come to the cookout tomorrow, 
with this mission? What are the main things that kind of have your attention, that, that, that have you fired up right now? You know, the, the early disciples, when they heard about this mission that Jesus was inviting them to, and they heard the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples, they gave their lives, some of them literally, to see this mission fulfilled. At this current moment, I just want you to consider for yourself, are you looking for a church to attend or a mission to be a part of. Just a church to attend, I can tell you that will grow weary and it'll get ugly like that stagnant pond after a while, but a mission to be a part of, man, that'll turn this thing into one of the most beautiful communities you've ever been a part of. Are you looking for a church to attend or a mission to be a part of? I long for our church to just return to that same zeal where we said, hey, we are here to see more people follow Jesus. And I don't have a ton of time practically this morning to talk about what that looks like. All of us have different gifts. It'll look different ways. I simply want you to evaluate your own desire right now to be engaged in that mission. So that's the first area of application. The second one is an urgent call to pray. So Jesus does not say here on this rock, you guys are gonna build my church. He doesn't say that. He says on this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. You you maybe get to be an instrument and you get to be a vessel used by God, but at the end of the day, it's him who's building it. It should call our memory to Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Isn't that even clear in what Peter experienced? He says, Peter, flesh and blood didn't bring you to this revelation. It was my father in heaven. What we're talking about here is something miraculous, something divine that only God can do. And so I wanna just call an urgent prayer. Read this passage, that's the description of the mission and just begin to pray that God would do it personally. And then corporately, I wanna call us to prayer as we never actually have before as a church. What we're working on right now is to have a real unique season this summer. So when we first started the church, we had a real unique season of putting it all together. This summer, I wanna create a real unique season where we are coming together, fasted if possible, seeking the face of God as a church on a weekly basis. We're putting the details together for exactly what that's gonna look like and we'll have that uh, coming shortly. But in the meantime, just hear this urgent call to pray. Unless the Lord builds it, those who labor, labor in vain. We need God. We need God's power. We need his presence in our midst more than ever before. So those are the first couple of things. One, just evaluate your own engagement in this mission, your own desire to be a part of it. Number two, just this call to pray. And then finally, I just wanna ask in this room, have you experienced personally the kind of transformation that Jesus is talking about here? The kind of transformation where maybe you've come to a place in your life where you you realize like, man, I've spent my life worshiping and serving and chasing after things that are not God. I've prioritized maybe money, maybe career, maybe sex, whatever it is for you. I've, I've prioritized so many things and put God at the very best in the back seat. Maybe you've disregarded him entirely. Have you experienced the kind of transformation where you say, Forget all of that. Forget all of it. I want to follow Jesus. How do you know 
if you're in a position to have that kind of transformation in your life. One, it is something miraculous. It is something only God can do. Maybe he's doing it in our midst right here, right now. How do you know if he's doing that in your life? How do you answer that direct question from Jesus to you? Jesus says to every person sitting in this room this morning, who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Are you ready to say this morning, you're the Christ, you're the king. You get to call the shots in my life from now on. I give up, I surrender. Man, that was one of the most beautiful experiences in my life when I I realized the, the freedom of just surrendering to the authority of Jesus in my life. We say, you're the Christ and you are the son of the living God. You're not just somebody important. You're not just somebody I wanna give my Sundays to. You are God in the flesh. You took on flesh so that you could pay the penalty for my sins on the cross and then rise up from the grave to give me new life. I would just urge this morning, maybe there's some in this room that need to sit and wrestle with that question that's given to you point blank from Jesus. Who do you say that I am? A moment we're going to take communion. So this morning, we're going to kind of slowly return to kind of how we used to do it. So we'll have a couple servers up here. We still have our communion packages, okay? Uh, but you can pray in your seat. That's how we used to do it as a church. And then uh, when you're ready, you can come from your seat. And then uh, whoever's up here will, will give that communion package to you and speak over you what Jesus has done. If you're going to take communion with us this morning, I just want you to contemplate this incredible reality. As soon as Jesus breathed his last breath, We've been talking about the temple. Something important happened in the temple. What was it? The veil was torn from top to bottom. What does that mean? God's presence is not contained to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. The kind of temple he's building is very different. We are the temple of the living God. We can experience God's presence as his people. Why? Because of what happened right before the temple was born. He gave his life for you. He gave his life that you could be set free from your life of idolatry and turn and worship and serve the true and living God. So would you remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for you this morning? If you're here this morning and you hear that question, who do you say that I am? And you do not say that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I would ask you to stay in your seat. Please don't come forward for communion. But man, the the opportunity is right there before you as we get ready to worship. You can begin, even the lyrics of these songs could articulate that confession that Peter gives in, in this passage. Confession, I'd, I'd be happy to talk to you, but as we take communion, just remain seated. For the rest of us, you can hang out in your seat for a moment, contemplate perhaps a little bit that God's working in your own life, and then whenever you're ready, come forward. We'll give you communion and speak over you what uh, these, these elements represent. Let's pray together.